Welcome to Tracks to Success, brought to you by Presentation Partners. This is the podcast that brings you inspiring people and their inspiring stories. How did they find their way to the top and how can their path help you do the same? Here's your host, network broadcaster, executive and entrepreneur, Craig Can. Right now on this edition of Tracks to Success, you'll hear from the leader of a -a one-of-a-kind, in-your-face Irish-American band from the Northeast that's built quite a following. He's a songwriter, a lead vocalist, and a bass guitarist, but would probably rather have a hockey stick or a baseball bat in his hands because, well, because he's all about Boston sports. And actually, Boston sports have also become a little bit about his band. He was born in Massachusetts, raised in Massachusetts, and lives in Massachusetts. He's a self-proclaimed diehard of the Boston Bruins, the Red Sox, the Celtics, and the New England Patriots. And he's got a bit of a crush on Bobby Orr, just so you know. Celtic punk rock isn't his only thing because there's ownership in bars and restaurants, a stake in local boxing, and a huge devotion to charity work. So what's it like to have a cult following so strong that your songs find their way to Fenway and major motion pictures? And how did all this fame come from the formation of a small little Boston band? His name is Ken Casey. He's the heart and soul of a band called the Dropkick Murphys. His inspiring story and this edition of Tracks to Success starts now. Well, Ken, I promised myself when I started this podcast that we would bring listeners the stories of people from all walks, all right, all parts of the world. I am really excited to have you. Thank you so much for being my guest. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to have a lot of fun. Let me start with this. You started a band back in 1996, not punk rock, but Celtic punk. How would you describe that? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I guess it was, a, you know, in the early days of fairness, it was more punk rock just because we really hadn't learned to play that additional Celtic instrumentation. However, our influences and somewhat of our goals were to uh, mix the two, you know, growing up in Boston and, you know, you know, obviously big Irish descent and Irish music, very prevalent, but also you know, growing up with, you know, being fans of uh, punk rock music and, and a lot of the, the the hardcore bands coming out of Boston. And it was just like, it kind of just was like a natural thing. Um, <clears throat> before we could really implement uh, the two together as a full-time successful thing, we, on our early recordings, we had some bagpipes. And I do think also just the, the speaking of storytelling, like delivery of the lyrics and stuff was in that, heavily influenced by that kind of Irish storytelling thing. And, um, you know, then it's like, if you build it, they will come. We were a four piece and, and then suddenly, you know, because <laughs> uh, a lot of the people in our lives that knew how to play those instruments were like cops and firemen, you know, that weren't quitting their jobs, uh, you know, uh, as a fireman to go play bagpipes with a punk band. <laughs> but 
after we released our first record, a lot of kids that were fans of the band started to pick up those instruments and teach themselves how to play. And suddenly along the way, we went from a four piece to a seven piece and the Celtic nature of the band grew as we had, a you know, now had accordion, banjo, um, and, and, you know, and it just offers you as, a, as, as musicians and as a band, you can, you can still have the same aggression, but then you can layer over all this melody, you know? So it's a, it's a good hook. Yeah to get in like uh like in the early days you'd have a lot of kids say like yeah you know i, I was a fan of the band and shockingly my father liked it you know because maybe we were doing a traditional irish song or maybe you know just enough of that celtic melody was a hook for another generation right well the dropkick murphys okay you are the original and and it's kind of changed and grown as you just talked about along the way what's been the key to success because there are a lot of cities that have kind of their band, right? That they call their own or bands that call the city their own. So what's made yours different and so special that it's had this longevity and the following? Well, I think the key, one of the main keys to success is uh, low expectations because then you'll always achieve, uh, you know, it's not hard to, to reach your goals. Uh, but, to, to give some background on that, um, the band started, you know, I, I had always, I had been, you know, there was a, there was a venue called the rat, which was short for, you know, short for the rat skeller. And that was like our version of CBGB's here. And it was there forever. You know, my mother, it was, my mother told me it was a place she first ever had a drink with her fake ID when she was a kid. So that's, <laughs> you know, the generations expanding and, um, and, you know, the rat, uh, I would book shows at the rat. They were kind of, um, you know, the, the owner just cared about like his night shows. So in the day, if you would, you know, a lot of the punk shows were all ages matinees because the owner would just say, Hey, give me 20% of the, the cover at the door. And, you know, you could pay, pay the bands with the rest. And you know, I was just doing it to help bands that I liked. And I was always starting to say, I wanted to start a band, but purely, kind of as a joke to play covers in a basement just for fun. And um, I was bartending at the time and I was going to, I was going to UMass Boston and working construction and, uh, and, and, and bartending at Symphony Hall. And um, one of the kids I worked with went to Berkeley School of Music and he said, Hey, I, you know, you're always talking about starting a band. My, my band has a show in three weeks. I dare you to open for us. And we made a $30 bet. And mm. I got together with um, uh, two friends that had had some musical experience and another like me that hadn't. Um, we wrote two originals, learned four covers to make a six song set. And we played the six songs twice and we packed the place with all our friends that were coming strictly to laugh at us because, <laughs> you know, it was like... <laughs> Hey, you want to come see my band? And they're like, what? You've never even picked up an instrument. What are you talking about? Oh, I got to see this, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, and they, you know, it was just a, it was fun. It was a good time. And we did that like three or four times. And then uh, we got an offer to open for, for a band that, you know, we grew up listening to that was doing a reunion. And um, yeah, then the rest is history. Be, oh. you know, yeah. So we started kind of growing a fan base at that rat and we would, we would basically, um, you know, we still all had our jobs and whatnot. So we would, we got to a point where we were, we were able to, you know, sell out the rat, which, you know, back then to us and with the history of that place, that was like, 
you know, that was the, the height, you know, that you could ever even dream of achieving. And, and I had no desire to do anything beyond that. But what we would do is book an all ages matinee with eight bands. We'd headline, we'd, we'd bring in seven bands from seven other cities and they'd have a great show because the Boston punk scene in the nineties was just really unbelievable. And they'd all go back to their city owing us a show and um you know they they they'd make sure when we came that they filled the place by hook or by crook because they wanted to take pride in their city's kind of scene and didn't want it to be empty when we had such a good show so even if people weren't necessarily knowing us that well right you know these kids in the other city were going to make sure that people were there for us so let's tell your story okay you grew up in massachusetts irish heritage who was your greatest influence as a young child, like what were you as a young kid? Uh, that was my my father. My father died. Uh, he committed suicide when I was seven, and um, my grandfather, my mother's father, kind of took that role of a parent. And he was just, you know, uh, he was, you know, the best role model you could have in terms of just hard worker. Uh, you know, just taught me everything that made me who I am. I guess, which was. Uh, a little bit, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, just taught me to stand up for myself, taught me to speak up for myself, taught me to, you know, like uh, just got to show up and go after what you want. And, um, and um, yeah, he was, he was the biggest, uh, definitely, mm. you know, role model in my life personally. And then, you know, obviously if you're talking about like outside of your life, we, you know, you and I discussed off here would be Bobby Orr, obviously, because uh, <laughs> he was the guy that everybody, you know, but, you know, he carries himself and he carries himself in a manner that, uh, you know, it's, it's really, you know, it's funny with all that that guy does, has done on the ice. If you ask anybody around here about Bobby Orr, the, the first thing they're probably not going to talk about is how great a player he was. The, the, the majority of people going to talk about what a good guy he is and how much he does in the community you know and uh, you know you got to spread a lot of good and he doesn't he doesn't talk about it, he doesn't do interviews about it, he doesn't ever pat himself on the back when he when he does things and shows up at hospitals there's not you know camera crews there but the word is out on all the stuff he does because you know all these years of doing good stuff like he's he's lived it's a small close-knit world there and he's right. like usually had a direct effect on somebody's family and everybody, you know, around. And, um, you know, so, uh, which, which gets back to the story, the connection between those two is, um, uh, you know, my first words with Bobby Orr because my grandfather just sat there saying it over and over and he wanted that to be, uh, my first, my first words. So, uh, your and, first uh, words were Bobby Orr. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, not obviously at that age, it's not like you comprehend what you're saying. It's just, sure. you know, repeat. And uh, but he was going to make damn sure that uh, that's what I, you know, got to do. And um, and to tie tie that together, I, I just recently got to uh, narrate the NHL Network's um, documentary on the 50th anniversary of the seven 1970 Stanley Cup team and the famous Bobby Orr goal. And actually, in the intro, they wrote the NHL Network writers wrote in um, the piece about you know me saying you know uh, and and in my and it says and, and in my my sake uh, from a grandfather to a grandfather who uh, to from a grandfather to a grandson whose first words are Bobby Orr. So 
uh, when I saw the script that they included that, I was like, man, practically shed a tear, you know? So that's cool. That's really yeah. cool. So yeah. on, on you as a youngster, okay. Did based on what you've already told me, you didn't know you were going to go into music. That just kind of fell upon you. So were you the kid young that, that was all into sports, big athlete in high school, that kind of thing? Yeah. I usually don't talk too much about this part of my life, but uh, since the nature of your program is telling your story, I will. Um, but my teenage years, I was, uh, I think after my father died, um, I went a little haywire and uh, I probably, uh, uh, was in a little bit of a blur with, you know, alcohol and drugs from probably 11 to 21. And, you know, I did finish high school after five years. I did play a lot of sport, but it was always, you know, you know, getting, not being able to participate in a lot of things because of chronic truancy. And, uh, mm. you know, so, um, and I actually ended up, uh, you know, quitting drugs and alcohol when I was 21 and, uh, haven't had, uh, haven't had any, alcohol or drugs in uh, 29 years now. So my life kind of starts then, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Everything else before that was really just uh, <laughs> not going anywhere fast, you know? Um, so yeah, that's where the story starts when I kind of, you know, turn my life around in that regard. And, you know, it was a li- uh, consequently a little late with everything, you know, going, going to call, starting college when I was 21 at, at UMass and, working and stuff so I was kind of on a trajectory to be like a five or six year plan and I was uh, going to be a special ed uh, or a special ed teaching certificate because uh, I was like special ed in school not that I had a learning disability but I had a, I had lots of other problems they didn't know what to do with me so but those special ed teachers were like uh, they made a big impact on me how how patient and um, you know how good they were with me so I figured like that would be a good spot for me to land in life. Yeah. And I was uh, 12 credits away from that when you never know what life, you know, throws in your hand in your lap and started this band on a joke and then was doing it on weekends as a joke and then doing it <laughs> on weekends as this little hobby. And then um, we got asked to go on our first tour and we had to make that decision of like, Oh, I'll take a semester off. And I'll put my, my, you know, bartending, my bartending job was like, especially for a teacher because Symphony Hall in Boston, um, in the summers, the symphony goes out west to Tangle, Western Mass to Tanglewood. So you, almost everyone that worked there uh, were, were teachers because, you, you know, you'd work the two jobs in the year and then you'd have the summer off from both. And I mean, you got a pension out of that place, bartending and everything. And so no one left that job, you know, and, um, and so, you know, I kept saying, uh, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, can I take one more, you know, uh, season off? But please, please hold my job for me because, I mean, I 100% thought I was going back. Sure. And, um, you know, be careful what you ask for. 24 years later, I still haven't gone back. It's so. awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. So tell me how Dropkick Murphys became the name of the band. I, I don't think a lot of people know that. Now, people in Boston might know that. But yeah. how did it start? Um, so of course, when we were looking to, uh, to, to, um, you know, do a show uh, with the bet, we only had three weeks to come up with, uh, come up with the name. <laughs> and, um, we were, we were torn between, uh, <laughs> I don't think I've ever told this publicly dropkick Murphy's or wait for it. 
the snots. Oh. Like, which I can tell you right now, no matter what we went on to do musically, if we had chosen the snots, I would have been long back at that bartending job and teaching <laughs> many, many years ago, which is fine. You know what I mean? But um, uh, so Dropkick Murphys was, we used to hear it all the time, obviously uh, in my non-drinking circles, I would hear uh, old guys say it and I, you know, my grandfather would say it and my father-in-law talked about it. Um, it was this kind of famous place, a guy by the name of John Dropkick Murphy. And um, he had a, he he had a kid. He was a he was a doctor, but he was also a wrestler. Back like when wrestling was a little bit more, nothing was ever real. But you know, you know, we would fill the Boston Garden with you know local guys every week, and he, right. he trained he trained boxes and stuff. And he had this kind of camp where he trained people. But he became more known for um, you know a lot of these guys would come and they'd be they'd have the shakes and stuff from being on a bender before they got to camp. So he started to experiment with kind of primitively detoxifying people with this taper down method of uh, using like horse tranquilizers and peraldehyde and paraki. I don't even know. And, <laughs> and, and so he be, kind of became more known for that. So not that it was like this recovery place, but it was where you needed to, where you went to taper down from a, from a binge and, so um, we always, you know, obviously it wasn't around by the time I was of, uh, of age, but I, I, you'd always hear the name. Oh, he was, he, they put him in drop kicks. Oh, he was in drop kicks. And um, we always just thought that'd be a cool name uh, for the band. And ironically, when we first started making uh, shirts in the early days, like we'd play a show and sell the shirts and then inevitably the next show kids would be like what what the hell i get old guys stopping me on the street everywhere saying like oh, i was in there in 1950 something and uh eventually obviously the band you know popularity be kind of you know took over a bit of it but we always gave the nod to the place and matter of fact dropkick son uh you know comes to the show sometimes and gets a kick out of it you know and it's kept kept uh his name and legacy alive to a degree as well. it's fascinating fascinating now i've talked to some people who know you okay in, in a little bit of research i've talked to some people who i didn't think would would know you or the name of the band and then they say to me oh yeah the dropkick murphys oh yeah yeah they're in this movie or they're tied to this sports team in boston and i was blown away which made me all the more excited to talk to you so i'm going to rip through through some things here with you and for the sake of time, we'll go a little quicker on some of these things. But I want to get to movies and songs. But let's talk sports real quick, because I know you're you're jacked up about that. And you already dropped Bobby Orr on me and got way ahead of me. But the Bruins, are they your top love? I'd say so, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, the Bruins are my team, yeah. They have been they're, forever. So Bobby Orr. sports teams that I have tattooed on, put it that way. Okay, all right. <laughs> Ray Bork, Cam Neely, or all Bobby Orr? Uh, no, you know, Bobby Orr was, uh, I was born in 69. So honestly, a lot of those memories of, of Orr and the Cups are like <laughs> home movies and, you know, the way that they were revered by, you know, my grandfather and uncles and everything. So, um, you, you know, the the Ray Bork, I mean, Terry O'Reilly at that late 70s era yep. of uh, O'Reilly and Cashman and all that was probably my, my first real teams, you know, and um, then... Obviously, the the Neely Bork era was, uh, yeah, was um, a huge, a huge uh, one. 
I, I know it, I don't want to get stuck on time, but I got to tell this quick story about Bork. I was uh, playing in a uh, charity game and it, at, at the Garden after a Bruins Flyers matinee, and it was sold out. Nobody left because it was Bork's first time coming back to skate on the Garden ice since he left to win the Cup with the Avalanche. And I happened to have been given a high number. I think it was like 44. So I was second to last being introduced before Bork. And everyone's all jacked up to cheer for Ray. And as they're announcing my name, and this is back in like, I don't know, early 2000s or something. And uh, so we weren't exactly as, you know, we were popular, but not like today maybe. And uh, as, they, as they're announcing my name from the local rock band, Dropkick Murphys, Ray steps too close to me on the Jumbotron so you can see his head over my shoulder. So as they're saying my name, 15, 16, 18,000 people stand up in unison for this standing ovation only because they saw Bork's face, but <laughs> they started the, they started the ovation while they were saying my name. So it was pretty epic. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I know for our, our listeners of this podcast, you all need to know that that some of these athletes from these teams that I'm, I'm dropping here, no pun intended with dropping, um, they're tied. They know your band. They know you. They're all in. We're going to get to charity you know, the work that you do in charity in just a little bit. But uh, what about the Red Sox? 04, the amazing comeback, right, against the Yankees to get to the World Series and then sweeping the Cardinals and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, how big are you with the Red Sox? Oh, he, uh, I mean, huge. and always was. It was just a different animal. Some Red Sox were always that kind of summertime, watching with your family, you know, as the Bruins are a little more like, for me, but uh, – I mean, my grandfather used that same grandfather was friends with Johnny Pesky. My grandfather was a big union guy in town. And he knew everyone. And he, he was friends with Johnny Pesky. And when he'd take me to games as a kid, we'd wait for everyone to leave. And Pesky would let me on the field. And I'd dive on center field thinking I was Fred Lynn. I'm talking about when I was, you know, seven, six, seven, eight years old. So they always had a huge spot in my heart. And, uh, yeah, in 2004, the Red Sox came to us and said, hey, we dug up this old good luck song that the fans used to sing. They were called the Royal Rooters. They were all Irish immigrants back in the, uh, you know, um, I don't know, 1909 era through 1918. And they would would sing this particular song. It was guys like, you know, John L. Sullivan, Honey Fitz, who was uh, JFK's grandfather, was this all group of super fans. And um, that's what I, I hear. That's where the term fanatic came from, from huh. the uh, Royal Rooters. And um, they used to sing this song called Tessie. like a Broadway song at the time, but they would change all the lyrics to kind of rank on the opposing team's pitcher and whatnot. And um, and when Ruth got traded, they stopped singing the song and they, you know, hence 80, 86 year drought. So the Red Sox said, oh, maybe this is the reason we haven't won in 86 years. So uh, we redid the song. Um, on July 23rd, I went in the Boston Herald and proclaimed that this song would uh, break the curse. I have that on my wall. 
that article. Um, and then we debuted the song July 24th on the field uh, against the Yankees and they were getting killed. And we were like, well, so much for that. Uh, <laughs> it didn't work so well, but that was the famous game that they, uh, A-Rod and Veritech got in the fight and uh, they had the big uh, comeback win and Bill Miller hit a walk-off home run and suddenly, uh, you know, we were playing all these games before the games in the uh, in the playoffs and, um, you know, wild ride. And we got to, got to be on the field with them in St. Louis. I called my other grandfather, who uh, my grandfather that raised me, John Kelly, was already deceased, but my my other grandfather tom casey who was you know your great grandfather awesome grandfather as well he uh i he was 86 years old at the time and i called him from the field in st wow. louis and wow he was in tears i was in tears it was unbelievable that's awesome now the patriots obviously have had a few good years um they won the super bowl that year and so at that time you know most people probably know they felt like they owned the place. They owned the sports landscape. You got the Super Bowl champ Patriots. You got the Red Sox winning the World Series. The only thing that didn't happen was the Celtics didn't win the championship that year. How big are you with the Patriots and the Celtics? You've been playing your songs at any of those games? Uh, the Celtics, I mean, you know, Bird was my guy in the 80s growing up. Uh, uh, but, you know, basketball, I've not stayed as uh, – I just feel – I just felt like uh, – you know, I, I lost it when it was just kind of just not as much passing and finesse, and it was just uh, mm -hmm. slowed down a lot. Um, I did enjoy, um, you know, I still watch the Celtics. I'm just uh, just not as rabid about them. Yeah. Uh, but they use they use shipping up to Boston a lot, and um, you know they're very good to the drop kicks if we ever need anything. The Patriots really never when they one of the championships they won. Uh, we've won so many. I can't remember which one it was. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'm getting, you know it's fun to now, but like when someone talks trash on Brady now, it's just like, eh, doesn't sting as much, you know. Um, but they they never really reached out to us to do as much. Um, um, we did play when they unfurled the banner after winning one of the championships. We played uh, prior to the game, and we've sung the anthem there once but they never really reached out the way Belichick is not a punk rock guy Brady yeah, no. doesn't like the punk rock I could see Gronkowski no, Brady, back in the day yeah, Brady's been great to us I've got to meet Brady I've become close with his family and golf with his father Tom mm -hmm. Sr. and uh and they're they're just that Brady family is I mean with all that success they are still such a like pure like close-knit, awesome family, awesome people gives you like real hope that people can, you know, not lose their, their marbles when they get that famous because yeah. they are, they are just solid people. So when I think of the Patriots, honestly, I think of the Brady family and how, uh, how cool they've been to just, to just as a family, you know? So specific songs you, you brought up Tessie, right? That came to yeah. fame in, in 03 with the Red Sox. And then, some of the other big time songs that you've had again for our audience here they they probably don't realize shipping up to boston is a part of the academy award-winning movie departed okay and that was a platinum single for you guys then you got barroom hero you got state of massachusetts what am i missing what are the what are the big ones that people would definitely know well i don't know that people would definitely know them but you know Ro the song rose tattoo is technically our second biggest song in terms of like Streaming. Wouldn't be alone. Some may be from showing up. I 
You know, it's funny, we have like the two worlds. It's like we have the, the world where people, you know, air shipping up to Boston through sports and they're a casual fan. And then, you know, Rose Tattoo is, is you know, the amount of like plays it's had and, and streaming and spins is like getting up there close to shipping up to Boston, but it's never had any commercial play. So that's more like the fan base that knows that song, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, um, so, you know, it's good to see that, like, you can go outside and use the music world, like, via sports and TV to help, you know, project your band. But you can also just, like, have a song that music people like, too. You know what I mean? Sure. It goes, goes somewhere even without commercial success or, or without... But think about this for a second. I mean, you've had to pinch yourself having your music be an, an Academy Award-winning movie. Yeah, I, you know, I'm usually a, pe you know, kind of a pessimist about the band. I'm not a pessimist, but like try to, um, when good things happen, I try to not be like, you know what I mean? I try to take it, oh, that's cool, you know, not get like overly excited about it. But I will admit this, when I went to the Boston premiere of The Departed, now keep in mind, we had no idea how the song was being used in the movie. We just, um, you know, we just knew it was in there. And when it came on in the opening credits, it was like, wow. But it was also the volume that was that was really loud. Like we had a song <laughs> one time in, in the Sopranos, right? And I was all excited and I'm watching the Sopranos and I'm watching and I'm watching and I'm watching. And then my phone rings and it's a friend. He goes, well, that was kind of cool. And I go, what? And he says, oh, if you didn't hear it, it was so low in the background that I didn't even hear the song. So, you know you got to give credit to like, not only like where it's placed in the movie, but like, honestly, in that deposit, it's really prominent and loud in that spot. And I think that, you know, the spot and the volume had a lot to, and the, and obviously the nature of what the movie was about had a lot to do with how it resonated, you know, to people watching the movie. You know? No question. Ken Casey is our guest on this edition of tracks to success. Tracks to Success is brought to you by presentation partners, visual storytellers passionate about connecting presenters with their audience. By the way, I can't not ask you about the onstage fight because if you Google Ken Casey, it just comes up, all right? So I'm, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I got to ask you, um, you're not even a drinker anymore, yet you got yourself bloodied in a concert. Can you just tell that story? Uh, which one? There's two, there's two different <laughs> one, both got me on TMZ. So you got to be careful these days. Everything is a camera everywhere, boys and girls, be careful. But, um, I, you know, listen, we're very protective about our audience and everything. And, you know, the security can't always see what's happening going in the crowd because we're, we're at a different perspective standing up like that. Um, my first TMZ episode was, uh, you know, a, a white power Nazi type guy got up and started uh, Zeke Heiling on stage. And it's, it was at a point in the show where we, at the end, we let all the fans on stage just as kind of a camaraderie kind of, you know, unity thing to say, we're not, cool. you know, we're not 
afraid to mix with you guys. Uh, and, and so he was in and amongst the people was hard to see. And, um, so I just felt like I, you know, we, we can't, we can't tolerate that on our stage or, or anywhere really. So I got into it with him, which was interesting because some people were like, good job. And other people were like, you know, you know, no excuse for violence and all that, but you know, whatever my, you know, getting back to my grandfather, he would taught me like, Mm-hmm. You know, and it might not be, uh, it might not be, um, politically correct nowadays, but you know, I would have been taught you that you, you better hit that guy first or, or I'll hit you harder when you get home. So, uh, um, but the second time was, uh, a couple of years ago and I just, I had seen a guy elbow a girl in the face. So I went in to try to, uh, stop it. And I actually just grabbed him and I wasn't trying to fight with him. I was trying to, uh, control the situation because the security guards didn't really notice it was going on because it was a, it was one or two people back from the barricade and his friend happened to be uh, a couple of steps behind him and he he was a real marksman and he uh he gunned a full beer off my head and it, it hit me just right and it split my split my head open pretty good and um yeah but uh, both of them ended up on tmz unfortunately yeah, yeah. Hey, I mean, listen, look, you got to be known for something. You're known for a lot of things. So we might as well throw that in there. And at least you're not the guy, you know, drinking, throwing beer bottles at other people. You just took one well, to the head. Right. When it comes to ending up on TMZ, you know, you, there's probably a lot worse ways you could end up on there. So I'll take, I'll take it, I guess. There you go. I would agree with that. Now, you've gotten your way into the restaurant business, and your stamp is all over the city. And, and what I find interesting is the music that you play, and yet um, – you got a Mexican place and some other places and tell us about that and how you got into it and, and how big has that been for kind of building the culture around the band itself? Um, well, on the restaurant side, only the first restaurant we did was called McGreevy's and it was actually has the tag of America's first sports bar. And that is uh, the original McGreevy's opened in the late 1800s and closed at prohibition. And it was the hangout of the Royal Rooters. So after the 2004, and it never reopened. So after the 2004 World Series, we said, man, there's so much history with all these Royal Rooters and all that. We should open, uh, you know, so uh, uh, we should open, reopen McGreevy. So we opened a replica. And that kind of, and that's downtown. It's near Fenway. Um, that kind of became the kind of almost like hangout of Dropkick Murphy's fans to a degree. And, uh, and it's a real lot of baseball history in there. Um, you know, old black and white stuff from the turn of the century and, um, really proud of that. And I really like, I'm really just into like designing and coming up with the concepts and, you know, finding the, the deal. And, you know, and luckily I grew up, a friend I grew up with, Brian O'Donnell is a great restaurant operator. So we have a great partnership. He says, it's awesome. Uh, you know, you shake hands, kiss babies, maybe do a little work, you know, for the first <laughs> six months of opening. And uh, and then I do the rest for two, for 20 years. I do the hard work for the next 20 years of the lease. I said, hey, we all got to do our strengths there, you know. Um, so we opened McGreevy's and then that just led to some different opportunities. We've done a couple of taco places and uh, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. I don't necessarily think I brand other than McGreevy's, it's more a separate entity and not necessarily branded with with the band per se. But um, you know, um, 
But the athletes I, come, right? I mean, like yeah, I saw oh, Wakefield's yeah. name tied to you and some some other, you know, stars in sports in Boston. Yeah, it's a small world, yeah, you know what I mean? And um, you know, I've been, you know, lucky enough to to become friendly with some of these guys. I mean, there's some great athletes that have come through here and played here and stayed. And but on the other hand, I'm also not the type of guy that wants to hang out with an athlete because they're an athlete, you know. It's like I mean, the charity foundation we have is where I've really met and become friendly with most of the athletes in town that are solid people because, you know, I think we have a good tradition here, like a lot of other cities in their, in their teams, athletes and retired athletes. But especially here, I think, in a lot of that tone was set by guys like Orr and the guys on that team that really, that really kind of, you know, you know, walk the talk and, and, uh, sure. and show that you show up and you, you do stuff in your community. Well, this this interview doesn't come complete unless we do talk about the charity, because of all the things that's tied to you, that might be the one uh, that that maybe means the most. How did that all start? And what is the mission, if you will, for all the work that you've done to give back? So we we were always, um, you know, we always had a social consciousness about us with the band. And I think it was because. We always, none of us were really, you know, like there's some people that they're born to be a musician, you know, their goal in life is to play music and they know they're going to do it from a young age. And none of us were really like that for the most part and almost had this like guilty feeling of being like, you know, oh, mus- musicians are like selfish, you know, bums. So like, we would even, we would rehearse at seven in the morning. We used to rehearse in this music complex with all those other bands. And the guy that, that ran the, the building would say, I've been doing this for 40 years and I've never seen a rock band rehearse at seven in the morning. What, what the hell is this all about? You, people get into music so they don't have to do this. And we used to say, hey, it feels like we have a real job, you know, and, and giving back the whole charity aspect just made us, always made us feel like it was, an offset to um, the good fortune that we were having, you know, and, um, and, but we were always involved with a million other causes. And, and I was having um, uh, lunch with Bobby Orr and, and, a, and a gentleman by the name of Bob Howe and another gentleman named Lee Kennedy. They're all both are friends of Bobby's and, you know, older guys and successful guys. And they were kind of mentors to me and, and they, they said, you know, why you you need to do something under the banner of the Dropkick Murphys to capture all your your fans' attention and get them behind it because, you know, it's hard to say, hey, all the fans, support this cause, support that cause. So if we do it under one banner, then we can take those funds and support other causes. So um, under their advice, we started that. And, um, you know, the mission statement is kind of the, three areas that are important to us, which is, um, you know, substance abuse and, and alcoholism treatment, um, children's related causes, and then veterans. And the ve- unfortunately, after the, you know, the war and the wars that have been going on for years, the, the substance abuse veteran thing is kind of melded with a lot of guys coming back and self-medicating. So that's a, that's a, that's been a large part. And then of course the, you know, tragic opiate, epidemic uh that's hit everywhere but massachusetts is particularly hard um so we stay busy with uh raising funds to help uh, a lot of local 
nonprofits that we, you know, we like to help underfunded uh, people that are doing a good job and that aren't, you know, don't have some, you know, director making, you know, a six figure salary, you know, so mm-hmm. we, we kind of try to keep it, keep it, keep it real and keep it to the people that get their hand, getting their hands dirty, you know. Um, and so we're mostly event driven and, you know, that's where a lot of the um, relationships with the athletes have developed. And obviously having Bobby in my corner has been easy, made it easy to, you know, uh, get a lot of the uh, athletes and, and whatnot involved. You know? Well, in 2016, you and Dropkick Murphys received the Robert F. Kennedy Children's Action Corps Embracing the Legacy Award for all your years of charity work with various organizations, including work with children and also the veterans. And it ended up at the Kennedy Library. I mean, these things are these things are very impressive. Like when you're talking about legacy, Ken, I'm sure that if they were writing up your stone right now, Dropkick Murphys would obviously be on there. But but some of these other things are at least, if not more, meaningful. Uh, no, absolutely. I, I the, you know the the Kennedy the Robert Kennedy Award is um, you know you you don't get much more respected than Robert Kennedy around these parts, and um, that's one of the ones that I'm like <laughs> allowed to put on my shelf i'm always told like yeah we'll get yeah you can we'll get you a man cave someday and you can hang all your stuff but (laughs) i never got the man cave and everything's in boxes that we've awards that we've got but the robert f kennedy one is actually allowed uh on the shelf somewhere in this house i don't know you you Um, got all the restaurants though you can put all your stuff in the restaurants do do whatever you want you got pubs and all that stuff i want to ask you about the fight game boxing okay Now, something also tells me that if I don't throw Conor McGregor in there talking to an Irish guy, that I'm I'm making a big mistake. You ever you ever met him? I have, yeah, yeah. He used to spend a lot of uh, his early days in uh, Boston. You know, uh, one of his close friends and trainers at the time, Tom Egan, was uh, working at a friend's friend's gym here, and uh, yeah, I got to meet him and spend some time with him. And um, then you know he used uh shipping up to boston for uh his ring walk for a while then he changed it to Sinead o'connor uh which is ironically it's actually the chieftain with Sinead o'connor singing the foggy duke uh he changed it to that which ironically has been the band's intro song since i think 99 um and and then he plays shipping up to boston after if he wins so and dana white's a friend so i've had a lot of occasions to meet connor and uh yeah i mean He's a good guy. I'm not. I'm not too into the persona as of late. You know what I mean. But um, I think he's trying to dial that back a yeah, little bit. A little bit. Um, but but I'm not. Uh, you know, like I'm. I'm a more of a boxing guy anyway. So. So um, how did that start? How did you get into the to the fight game and boxing and and all of that within the city? And t- tell us about that. So I, I you know, thank that same grandfather for you know getting me into boxing the way he did hockey and everything else and um. So, um, always been a huge fight fan, always just been around friends that, you know, boxed and, um, but I had a a friend named Danny O'Connor who was a Olympic alternate in Beijing in, uh, 2008, he unbelievable amateur career. He, he won, um, he was one of the only guys to win, I think, uh, Hearns and Leonard, uh, two others in that weight division that won 
both the, uh, the, the national amateur championship and the national golden gloves in the same year. Um, and so as a pro, he came out and he was, uh, 14 and oh, then he had his first loss on Showtime. And, you know, I was just watching with friends and he, he would help with the charity and I'm watching, man, here's this kid with this decorated amateur career, Olympic alternate, but he's, you know, not getting good opportunities. He's not getting treated well by his promoter. He's got a newborn baby. He's got to go down to Texas and train yet still be expected to sell tickets to his fights. You know, just seeing that kind of rotten underside to what, what, what is asked of someone in boxing, even when they're, viewed as an elite boxer at times and I said to myself man I, I think I can help him and my plan was you know as an Irish American Boston kid I figured I'm just going to get involved and like introduce him to the dropkicks fans via social media hmm. but then he starts saying well man could you like manage me so you could you know help me with these shocks in the water around us yeah I'll manage it and then his promoter's not doing anything so I said well, why don't I just promote you I know how to like fill the buildings i mean it's not you know rocket science you to promote someone and you you know so i started promoting um and i and i got a kick out of that i think it really did reinvigorate my entrepreneurial spirit of the early days of the band of you know because not i tell you boxing isn't what it used to be so you're, you're pushing a rock up the hill mm-hmm. but uh it, it is a fight town here and we've been doing it nine years and you know we've had a world champion we have multiple people ranked in the top 10 in the world um murphy's boxing is the company and uh you know obviously the band's fan base got behind it so you know and 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 the band's fans are awesome whereas if like if we introduce someone say this is our guy then they're their guy you know and they came and supported him even if they weren't big fight fans um and yeah it's 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 a labor of love i love the game and you so in helping danny and then, of course, other local fighters say, oh, can you help me? And the next thing you know, we've got a roster of, you know, 20 fighters. And I probably spend more time working on that than um, anything else in my life, which is scary. I don't know how that happened. But, um, <laughs> but you know, so it's but it, I like a challenge. And, um, you know, but the boxing game in a business perspective is not set up for the independent promoter. You know what I mean? You got you got mm-hmm. your top rank. You got your your sure. golden boy, you got your uh, Eddie Hearn and Matchroom, and, and and I work well with all those people. I've you know they know that they know that if they want to come to Boston, they've got to go through me just because of my relationships with the boxing commission and everything here. It'd just be easier to work with me than come and do it on your own. So I've got to partner with them a lot, but at the same time, you know that in boxing, if you're a small independent promoter, but you know it's it's rigged for the obviously for the uh the promoter that's got the, the tv deal and all that and um you know dana white's started um doing boxing on the ufc streaming platform called ufc fight pass and that's been great for us because he's helped us with that um but you know will murphy's boxing ever have a deal with showtime or whatever no probably not so <laughs> you know i don't think i'll ever i don't think i'll ever uh unseat bob arum that's for sure nor do i want to In addition to hosting this podcast, Craig leads the CAN Advisory Group, focused on elevating communication for companies and individuals. Company consulting, empowering team and individual workshops, 
mind-altering webinars, and Craig's inspiring keynotes for your conference or company meeting. They're all on the menu of services. CAN Advisory helps companies clarify their message, helps professionals build and showcase their brand, and helps everyone present their best selves. So if you're the leader of a team or company looking to give your employees a game-changing one-day experience or an individual who wants to become a speaker and presenter that gets other people talking, visit canadvisory.com. And when you do connect, make sure to mention the Tracks to Success podcast to receive a special discount on any of the Can Advisory services. That's canadvisory.com. Now back to the interview. We're talking with Ken Casey from the Dropkick Murphys. Ken, in our remaining time, I want to I throw something out there. You were involved in a motorcycle accident in 2018. Some pretty serious stuff included in that you lost the feeling in uh, your hands. You couldn't play the guitar, right? You were out of your job, if you will, to the degree that you were on stage, leading the way, playing the instrument and all that. Did you think it was over at that point? And if so, did it make you reflect on all you'd accomplished, all you'd done if all of a sudden, you know, I can't do this anymore? Um, no, I never I never thought it was over. First of all, just for clarity, uh, it kind of got misrepresented via social media. It was actually an old accident. And I, and, and I had just, I had always battled the pain of it. And then I just finally lost all feeling in my arm so mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't a current accident but um but when i had the operation uh yeah i didn't i didn't know how long it would be um until i could play again but i never thought it was over i just thought that i would just kind of assume a different role so i temporarily anyway was um you know because i sing and play but al uh bod just sings and, and we trade off on a lot of songs and so here we are now. We had a kid that worked for us playing playing for me, and then I'm up there just singing with Al. And ironically, at the time, Al had just lost his dad, and he was struggling bad with that. And he just, you know, he wasn't able to like put on the face. You know what I mean? To 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 be up front all alone, and you know, this, the big man's got a plan because sure, you know we were kind of just leaning on each other. And then we started to have so much fun with that dynamic that when I healed um, and we, we love Kevin who was filling in for me, we basically said, Kevin, you can stay and we're going to keep it this way. And it actually works for us too, because when we're playing a lot of the largest stages, like say in Europe where, where we have more popularity, or, you know, Al's on one side, I'm on the other. And, hmm. you know, it's, you feel like it can like engage everyone a lot more at the same time. So, um, yeah, we feel like it kind of at, at 20 something years into the band kind of gave us a new, new twist and a new energy or whatever. And right. um, well, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. You you know, you might think something's a, you know, you know, it, I guess it's all is the glass half full. And if you can either look at it as you're, you're coming to an end or, or you come into a new beginning, you know, Ken, a couple of things before we go. Do you speak to groups? And if so, what's your message? What would you tell people who maybe want to create a unique path like you have? What would you tell them? I, I'm, I mean, my message is simple in the sense that you, you, you got to take the bull by the horns and do it yourself. And I'll give you the example is at the time, 
um, you know, in the time, in the mid-90s, if you wanted to make it in music, you started with getting your glossy uh, band photos and doing your bio and making a demo. We never did that. We just pressed our own records and we toured and we played shows, you know. So I, I, I my attitude, whether it's boxing, restaurants, it's just like, just do it. Figure it out. Don't wait for someone else to give you the break because that break may never may come. And, uh, you know, um, I guess it's that true entrepreneurial spirit and that true spirit of like uh, believing in yourself and just going for it. And, and I know, and obviously in every business and stuff that might not, you know, apply, but it's applied for me in multiple different facets of my life because, uh, you know, I, I definitely came from a background where, you know, no one was waiting to hand me a silver spoon. So you better go out and find your own way. And so far, so good. I'm, I'm still not back bartending yet. You know what I mean? But I think they'll take me back because I had a, I had a good reputation there. So I think if I go back uh, after 25 years, maybe I'll still have a job. Well, with the name you've built in Boston and the recognition and all that, you have truly built a brand and you've developed a following for everybody within the band and for your own name as well. This podcast is called Tracks to Success. My question, final question, is this a dream? Is it still a dream or is it a job that keeps you up at night thinking about how I can do better, what I'm going to do next? Or as much as you've talked about just kind of rolling with it, is that how you live? Oh, yeah, it seems more like just how I live. I mean, I have that active kind of mind that... (laughs) that works at night anyway. So I think no matter what I did, I'd probably be up thinking about how I could do it better. Or am I doing enough or overthinking my life? But to a degree at this point it is just rolling with it. You can't never let it be a job, you know, and that, and I think that's where some of that other stuff has served the point with the boxing and the restaurants. Whereas when maybe the band was becoming a little bit of a job because it was so focused that I needed to widen the view and kind of recharge my mind again. But um, I think it's just rolling with it because, you know, a lot of times if you're so, if you, you got to be driven, but if you get so narrowly focused on something, you know, the off ramp that you might've been supposed to take for greatest success, you might miss. So I think it's just a matter of, uh, you know, always, always working hard, but always having that kind of peripheral vision to, where 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 is this going to take me because it might not be the path that i exactly thought yeah well the bruins are one of the original six and there's no question that you are an original your band is an original i congratulate you on all your success not just on stage and the fans that you're with but also all the people you've been able to impact and the give back and the pay it forward it's impressive ken i can't thank you enough for being on tracks to success Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you. In our conversation, Ken shared stories about his band taking off and the network he's built for himself and the following that's come from all the hard work, which leads me to my one last thing. If you want to be an influencer, don't focus your attention on chasing a following. Focus on the product. Deliver what the audience wants. Do it better and better each time. Most importantly, be your own brand and your own style and do it your own way without fear of not blending in just like everybody else. Ken's music has found his way into movies and it's found its way into stadiums and arenas, not because the music is better than everyone else's, but because it's catchy 
and it has a stickiness factor that's magnetic and obviously memorable. I've said this countless times in my workshops. When you stand up, find a way to stand out. Don't wait for people to pay attention. Become one with your audience. Make people pay attention by delivering something so special that they'll be emotionally connected and charged to go share the story with others. The Dropkick Murphys have a following, and you can too. Figure out what makes you unique and special, and then go deliver it with that energy, just like Ken has each and every day. Do that, your tracks to success become a whole lot easier. And if you have a guest you think belongs on Tracks to Success, email me at info at canadvisory.com. I can't wait to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Craig Can. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Tracks to Success, brought to you by Presentation Partners, visual storytellers passionate about connecting presenters with their audience. Don't forget to subscribe to the show for more great interviews and thoughts on reaching your highest personal and professional summit. You can follow Craig on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Craig Can. And for exclusive Tracks to Success content and news about our upcoming guests, you can find Tracks to Success on Twitter. It's at Tracks to Success.